This is Using the Whole Whale, a podcast that brings you stories of data and technology in the nonprofit world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. everyone. Today we have Kay Sprinkle Graves, founder and principal of Transforming Philanthropy. Uh, Kay, how are you doing? Just great. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, right? We're in 2020 now. Who would have thought? (laughs) Who would have thought indeed? So Kay, you're the author of Transform Your Board into a Fundraising Force. Can you give us a little summary about your book um, and the importance of it? Yes. A number of years ago, I created a program called AAA. AAA represents ambassador, advocate, asker, which are the roles that board members play. And in my work with AAA, I found that in the application of a structure with uh, just tools for people to implement the program, that sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. And I, being a curious sort, thought, hmm, when does it work? And when doesn't it? What I determined as I became more observant of this was that when a board was passionate about the mission and about the impact of the organization, that AAA worked really well. They got into their roles. Everyone was an ambassador that was informed. Others were advocates. They were willing to pick up the phone and call City Hall if they needed to and that there were increasing numbers of askers. In organization where there wasn't the passion, this program was okay, but it certainly wasn't vigorous. So I began to reflect on the beginnings of my work in philanthropy and the importance of mission, vision, and values. Basically, this book is a little book, 110 pages, And it is a primer, if you will, about re-infusing your board with mission, vision, values, so that they can assume these critical roles that will lift the organization to the next level of performance. And can you explain a little bit more on the AAA, Advocate, Asker, and Ambassador, and where do you think the passion really comes from in board members trying to fulfill these roles? The program is so simple. People say, wow, I could have thought of that. And I say, yeah, but you didn't. And I did. And everyone in AAA is an ambassador. That's the key to the program. If a board member is not willing to be an informed ambassador, know the elevator speech, be able to answer the or ask the elevator question, be willing to say to someone when they say to them, gosh, I hear you're on the board of XYZ organization. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah, I've been trying to get off that board for years. You know, this is a missed opportunity. The missed opportunity is yes. And let me tell you about some of the exciting things that we're doing. So on the one hand, you have willing board members who are ready to be on-call ambassadors. Because being an ambassador can happen anytime, anywhere. It can happen in the grocery store. It can happen at the beauty parlor, the barber shop. It can happen in a more formal setting. You're at a cocktail party or a reception and somebody inquires about the organization. But it also requires that the organization understand that for board members to be true ambassadors, they have to have a balanced view of the organization. And board members have a fiscal and legal responsibility for the organization. Of course they do. But many organizations veer to the side of inundating their board members with financial issues and crises, rather than igniting them with the potential that exists if they go past this crisis and the impact they could have in the community. And this is where the responsibility is a shared responsibility of the organization to infuse the board member with the stories, with the impact, 
with the quantitative, qualitative uh, manifestations of this. At the same time, it is the responsibility of the board member to be able to take that out into the community and to talk about the very positive impact that the organization is having. And one of the things that I have been recommending for years in several of my books is the importance of what I call mission moments in board meetings. And halfway through the board meeting to catch the latecomers and the early leavers, you bring in somebody from the community. This is not a program person. This isn't a program report. This is someone from the community, either a direct client or consumer or patron, whatever the category is, who basically says to the board, this has been my experience. This is the impact you have had on me. I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing in this community, because that is what buoys board members in terms of their enthusiasm. So the requirement is that all board members are willing to be trained ambassadors. A board member who says, you know, I'm really too busy for that, should not be on the board. And that may sound harsh, but you don't want one board member or two who say, oh yeah, I can't do that. Have them be on a committee or have them come back on the board when they have more time for you. Advocacy is a little bit different. Advocacy is usually very attractive to people, ambassadors, board members, who also want to be advocates for you in a legal, financial, or other capacity. It is attractive to people who have the more quantitative thinking or lawyers. Uh, I work with a board, I'm on a board, where we have a couple of lawyers on the board who are simply incredible in their advocacy for us. And they've gotten us through some tricky negotiations, if you will, and they truly believe in the organization. So the advocacy can also be a board member who says to the CEO or the development director, I'll go with you on that call to that foundation. I know we're not asking for money, we're just giving an update, but I'm willing to ask the foundation for uh, their insights about our work to date, and certainly I can answer tough questions. So the biggest difference between an ambassador and an advocate is that an ambassador, it can happen anywhere, anytime, at the drugstore, at the barbershop, the beauty shop, wherever, but advocacy is something that's prearranged, and advocates often get tougher questions. Askers are the third category. On most boards, I would say the national average on a board of 17 is that you'll I'll ask, how many of you really like to ask for money? And I'll get two or three. <laughs> and I'll say, great, that's the national average. And you're just right in line. And then we'll talk about why people don't like to ask and what are the hangups people have. And in this book, as well as in others that I've done, I offer some tips on asking and kind of some philosophical points to get us past the point of feeling uncomfortable. The biggest principle being that people give because we meet needs, not because we have needs. So we don't go in as beggars. We go in as advocates and ambassadors for organizations that are making a huge difference in the community. So those are the three basic points. What this book does is that it takes AAA to a different level because it emphasizes the importance of the passion, the mission, the vision, the values, and living your values, not just saying your values, but living your values and being the exemplars of the organization and the community. Mm. Yeah, that sounds amazing. And it sounds like AAA is very much an intersectional program that pushes board members to be askers in a way, but not necessarily in terms of finances. That's exactly right. And what is fascinating is that I have worked with hundreds of boards and thousands of board members with AAA, and many of them are absolutely delighted to know that they can be ambassadors and advocates for organizations and missions they care deeply about and not be put into what feels to them like an awkward position of having to do something that is counter 
to what they want to do. A lot of people are very, very uncomfortable asking. It's deeply embedded in them. Let them go on calls with people who do like to ask. The other thing is that it's fascinating that when people, I center the AAA program around the confidence factor, that when people sign up for things that they feel confident doing, they do them. As opposed to my saying to you, well, this is what we want you to do this next year. And you look at the list and you think, I don't want to do any of those things. But you say, okay, because you've signed up to be a board member. And a unique factor in the AAA program is that people choose what they want to do. There's an opportunity checklist. And the actions are clustered in ambassador, advocate, and asker categories. and board members go through and just put a tick mark next to the ones that they're willing to do. So they're choosing what they want to do. We're treating them like grown-ups who know what they like to do. And basically what we're doing is we tap into their confidence. This confidence is further very much enhanced when organizations go back to their basics, which are the mission, the vision, the values of the organization, and make that part of every single meeting and every interaction. Mm. I think even in your practice of treating people like people is very much embedded in your overall mission as well. Um, yes. It's hard to find these days. <laughs> it is. And one of the problems we have with mission is that mission has become a what statement. But if I don't know your why, how can I identify with your what? And an example I often use when I am teaching uh, a class or something is that I'll ask people to tell me their mission. And I was teaching a class and one of the participants was a woman who was involved with a medical services organizations in a community that had been founded as a logging community. And even though it was no longer a logging community, it maintained this vital medical program and people came from all over the country that dealt only with hands, injuries, deformities to the hand. So I said, what's your mission? And she said, oh, oh, I'll read it to you. And it was the mission of Vector Health Programs is to provide for people who have sustained serious injury or who have congenital blah, 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 blah. And I thought, oh my God. So I said, okay. My question to you is why? She says, what do you mean, why? I said, why? Why do you do this? Well, she said, because people need their hands. And I said, why? She looked at me like I had lost my mind. <laughs> and she said, well, because you use them. And I said, yes, that's right. But finish the idea, we exist because, and write a mission statement that even if I'd never had anything worse than a hangnail, I would say, oh my gosh, we really do have an important organization in our community, and I would like to support it. And this is what she wrote. Again, finishing the idea we exist because, which keeps away from the infinitive form of the verb, which most of the what statements have. But this is what she wrote. Next to the human face, hands are our most expressive feature. We talk with them, we work with them, we play with them, we comfort and love with them. An injury to the hand affects people personally and professionally. At Vector Health Programs, we give people back the use of their hands. Wow. Wow, exactly, wow. <laughs> And what a difference and how inspiring. And there was a follow-up to it that was rather interesting. About three months later, this same executive director came back to an advanced class I was teaching and she had her board chair with her. And I saw her and I said, Karen, I said, did you bring that mission statement? It's so fabulous. And she looked at me and honestly, if looks could kill, I'd be dead. <laughs> and the board chair immediately said, what mission? What mission statement? We have a mission statement. 
And Karen said, oh, it was just a class exercise. It was nothing. And I said, Karen, I said, I have it. I said, may I read it? <laughs> she looked at me and, okay, I read it. The board chair had tears running down her face when I finished. Wow. And it was only then, as she wiped the tears away, that I noticed she was missing the forefinger and thumb on her left hand. And she said, I became connected with Vector when I had my own surgery after my accident. She said, but until today, I never really understood why. This is what we are missing. This is what we're not doing with our board members. There's a disconnect. And transform your board into a fundraising force is about how we overcome that disconnect, how we deliberately focus on raising the board's passion quotient so that they can be involved in the transformation from being a board that is perhaps marginally involved in fundraising in all aspects, ambassador, advocate, asker, and one that has found, each of them have found their roles and are passionately advocating for the organization in the community. The other thing that I find as I work with so many organizations, that often the vision is the vision for the organization. Yes, we want to be the best hospital in our community. That's a fine vision for the staff. But for the community, they want to know, really? What they want to know is, what is your vision for the community if and when you are successful? So I offer examples of visions that I think are very inspiring. Save the children. Our vision is a world in which every child attains the right to survival, protection, development, and participation. That's exciting. Rather than our vision for Save the Children is to become the preeminent provider of services to children who have been separated from their families due to disaster or war. Okay, but why? And the, this larger vision is that every child should have that right to survival, protection, development, and participation. It's such a small tweak that we have to do. That's what's so ironic, is that most boards are there. It's, it's embedded in them. And what we have to do is release it. And by getting them to think about your vision. And so I'll take them through an exercise of where they imagine a headline you know, five or 10 years out. And it's really exciting what they come up with. Because if you ask them what their vision is, they get tangled up in, in the technical aspects of vision. Is it this? Is it that? But if you ask them to imagine they're reading a headline or seeing something online about their organization in five or 10 years, you'd be amazed what they come up with. Amazing. And I love how much your work is centered around people's stories and finding that empathetic string between board members that seem that there can be kind of a disconnect and the community that they're actually trying to help and serve. And it also seems like AAA is somewhat of a funnel where oh, ambassador yes. is at the top of creating this passion and drive for the mission, the organization, becoming an advocate, providing legal, financial, ultimately quantitative efforts and actions. And last, but also the golden and award-winning question is <laughs> the asker. Right. How do you find, when working with the board, pushing from ambassador and advocate, which seem to have very little asks, and pushing them down to become an asker? and really it, fundraising. You know, it often happens spontaneously. Um, a story that is so old, but so important to me, it was probably 20 or 15 years ago when I first started AAA. And it was adopted immediately before the book was ever written before, because there is a AAA book as well and adopted immediately by a hospital foundation in Southern California. In fact, I didn't know they had adopted it. What happened was 
that I took this concept to a huge conference of hospitals and I tried it out on them. The following year, I was invited back and they said, oh, by the way, such and such a hospital in Orange County, California, wants to tell their story of implementing AAA. And I thought, really? <laughs> I didn't know they had. And sure enough, but one of the stories they told, I have just embraced over all these years. And that was that for a year, they implemented AAA to get their campaign closed. And it worked like a charm. People were organized and focused because they'd signed up for things. It ran like clockwork. And you, you monitor this, the spreadsheet, you, you create a spreadsheet that indicates what people have signed up for, et cetera. So they said, but we want to share a story with you. There was a woman on their foundation board who loved to tell other people how to do things, but said she would sooner, I don't know, have a root canal than ever ask for money. And they honored that because she was very connected in the community. And our connectors are very important. So it came towards the end of the campaign and they were trying to finish it by calendar year. And they had a meeting to kind of look at the last of the prospects that they could close on before the year was over. And they were talking about a particular prospect and who would go to the meeting and they said this staff person and this physician and then this volunteer from the foundation and this woman said well what about me <laughs> you know, i brought her to the organization wouldn't you think it was kind of strange if i weren't there <laughs> they just kind of looked at her and uh they said but you had said you didn't like to go to these meetings well well she would just think it's strange well they got into the meeting. The woman was there and she said, but I'm not gonna ask. She said, I'm not gonna ask, I just will help. I'll be there and I'll help. The meeting went on and the woman, the prospect started pushing back on the ask. And they knew she had the capacity, they knew she was engaged, they knew she was ready, but it is a natural instinct of donors not to be separated from their money quickly. So, Finally, the woman who said she would never ask looked at her friend and said, why are you doing this? She said, you and I walk every morning. We've talked about this every day. You've said how much you love the hospital. You've said you want to make a gift. She said, why are you doing this? Come on, she said, just tell them what you'd like to do. And the woman just laughed and she made the gift. But it was that confidence factor because this woman had been honored. And the other thing about AAA, and it's also important with Transform Your Board, what we do is we say that each of those roles is as important as the other. One of our problems in board management of motivation and involvement is that re we reward askers. But do we reward the person who connected us initially with that asker. And one of the things that I emphasize in Transform is, does your board live its values? And one of the values we have is gratitude. Gratitude is the primary value of philanthropy. So a project that I was involved with, uh, we raised 18 and a half or 20 million to renovate a historic building. And we were getting close to where we were having to make some big decisions. And we were still without a lead gift that we felt was significant enough to kind of pin the whole campaign on and announce it. And one of the board members who did not have capacity herself was sitting at the board meeting and all of a sudden it was the light bulb. You could almost see it over her head. <laughs> she said, I think I know. I think I know who would make this gift. It was four and a half million that we needed. Wow. And she arranged the meeting. It was a close friend and colleague and who had cashed out of a tech job and had a, established a foundation. They went down, and this was in 2008, which was not a good year for fundraising because we were deep into the recession. Right. 
They went down on a Thursday. The woman asked for a proposal, which we worked on over the weekend. We got it to her on Monday. And on Tuesday, they made a four and a half million dollar gift. Wow. When we dedicated the space that had been created with this gift, what the organization did to me was exemplary. Not only did they honor the donor, but they honored the board member who had brought the donor to them. That is truly transformational. Because then it says, if I can't ask, and if I don't have the capacity, I can do something that can transform the organization. That was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, just what an amazing story. <laughs> You're such oh, a and, and it's just, it's just, it was so thrilling. And I mean, there was a slide, everything at this dedication, honoring Ellen, the board member who did this. The, I've mentioned values and it is always good for us to remember that not only is philanthropy originally love of humankind, which reminds us about why we do things, but that it is all based in values because donors don't give to or ask for or join or serve organizations whose values they don't share. And this is both good news and bad news. The bad news is that there are some people that we will never reach because we have either not exemplified our values or we have never tried to find their values. But in a way it's good news because it does winnow the donor base because there are some people with whom we should just not bother. But I created a model in an earlier book that I wrote uh, called High Impact Philanthropy. And if you think of it as three concentric circles, and the largest circle is philanthropy, which is based in values. The next circle is development, which is how we uncover shared values. And that's where ambassadors and advocates really do the yeoman's work. And fundraising as the process by which we give people opportunities to act on their values, which is what askers do then it changes the mindset and it reminds us that philanthropy both comes from abundance and creates abundance. And yet too often organizations focus on scarcity, which is why they're raising money. Instead of the abundance they create through their arts or education or health or human services programming, they are offering abundant opportunities for people to be served in their community. And therefore, the shift is from donation to investment. And donors carry, no matter what their capacity, they have two investment portfolios. They have their financial investment portfolio, whether it's they can give several hundred a year or they can give several hundred thousand a year. They have that financial investment portfolio and they have a social investment portfolio. They take from one to enrich the other. And yet we persist in coming back to them constantly with a message of scarcity. And that's the other thing about transforming your board. It is not the constant harping on what we don't have. It is the consistent advocacy for the difference we're making. And that is what can really transform a board's energy. And so values which come from our experience, our parents, our faith, wherever they come from, they are our guideposts. And they are very, very important. I search websites of organizations to see a listing of their values. I don't find it very often. But more than that, I find, and it's, this is a point emphasized in transforming, that in fact, if you don't live your values on the board, so let's, let's imagine that you're a hospice. Hospice has as one of its highest values, compassion. Right. And somebody on the board has an accident or loses a family member or a friend, and the board doesn't respond compassionately. The board doesn't just by habit and care 
send flowers or a card, then there is a disconnect. How can we be a compassionate organization if we're not compassionate towards each other? Mm. So the one I'm a very active volunteer with Stanford. I have been in the past, not so much more, but my family has given an endowed book fund at the library, but the library had a, an emergency. Uh, there was a flooding in the basement and they had to immediately pull the books out and freeze them so that they wouldn't lose these precious, precious books. And they did an emergency fundraising campaign. And I sent not much, maybe a couple of hundred dollars I sent because I give generously into the endowed book fund. And instead of getting, and the, my point here is that we should be mindful of our thank you letters. A lot of us are seeing a lot of thank you letters for gifts that we gave, and they are really rote. And I mean R-O-T-E, not W-R-O-T-E. And thank you so much for your gift of $100 received on December 31st, 2019. Your gift is tax deductible to the extent provided by law. We are a 501c3. Really? That's like not really reinforcing my gift. That can be put on a receipt. Right. Contrast it with this, which was the thank you card I got for my say $200 gift to this library emergency at Stanford. Your gift to the Stanford University Libraries helps us assemble the sources, the arguments, the hypotheses, the wisdom and controversies of the ages. For all those here and those yet to come, please accept our gratitude. And it was a fold over card on really beautiful paper with a line drawing of the library and in a separate mailing, Yes, I got a receipt, which my bookkeeper took. I've saved this card for 20 years. The values, amazing values in this. And so often what I'll do in a, in a workshop is have people write a values-rich <laughs> thank you letter or thank you note. And it's really a struggle because they immediately <laughs> want to go to, and we're a 501c3, and this is, oh, God. You know, it's like, of course you are. That's why I gave to you. So what I also really like about your work with AAA and your work with other nonprofits is this framing, a cultural framing that you kind of change. And there are a lot of things that go into it, including, like you said, with fundraising and giving thank you notes, making it less of an exchange and more focused on the gratitude and the investment, like you said, of the action that's been done. I think a lot of organizations who are struggling with fundraising can learn a lot. So what would you say is the first step in making this shift? I think the first step in making the shift is to refocus on mission, vision, and values. Be sure that board members are close to the product. In other words, many executive directors, for some reason I do not understand, do not want board members even communicating with program directors. I guess they feel that the board member is making an end run, uh, getting into management rather than governance. But when a board member comes on a board, they come on the board because they love the programs and the impact of the organization. It's not because they love board meetings. Trust me. In another book of mine called The Ultimate Board Members Book, I have a chapter called Board or Board and I don't need to spell those two words for you. <laughs> but the point being is that I don't join a board because I love meetings. I join a board because I believe in what the organization is doing and to stay refreshed, I need to be close to the product. I happen to be on the board of an orchestra and chorale, so, of course, I stay close to the product because we have concert sets during the year. It's not so easy when you are a children's services organization or you are a, a hospice or you are some organization that's working in human services or health. 
but there are ways to do it. It is a big mistake. Board orientation. I cannot tell you the number of executive directors when I say, so what's your orientation process for new board members? Well, we have a binder. Binder? I thought those went out with, I don't know what. Yeah, and we, we walked them through the binder. And I have this visual image of two people walking through a binder. And, oh, the bylaws, how fascinating. Oh, the Articles of Incorporation, in case I'm an insomniac. <laughs> but never saying, we plan a full immersion. We ask board members to allocate two half days for the orientation. And we introduce them to our program staff. We let them ask questions. We let them observe. And if it's a socially or, or physically sensitive program, they are allowed to understand about the program, perhaps without witnessing it. I work a lot in domestic violence, and obviously board members you know, mostly can't even know where the facility is because these are well-kept secrets. But there are ways that you can talk to women who have been through the program and who are now out and safe. But we just don't infuse people. I think that the, the donor development skills that we can offer them are basically skills of engagement, learning to ask open-ended questions. Tell me about, how did you get involved? People like to talk most about themselves. And I always give board members a huge sigh of relief when I say, if you're nervous about talking to somebody about this organization, learn to ask open-ended questions. Say, I'm delighted that we could meet today. Tell me, how did you first become involved? And I use the example of Ted Koppel, who did a program called Nightline years and years ago. And he would say, I ask my producers for three questions at the beginning for the beginning of each show. If the first one's good enough, I never have to use the other two because he would just build and build. These are skills that we can help our board members command that will in fact lead to a culture of inquiry where they are able to ask questions of the executive director, the development director, and have this interface with program staff. And interestingly enough, the AAA program has been offered to staff in a number of organizations that I work with. And staff, and when they first asked me, I said, oh, you mean as ambassadors and advocates? That's great. They said, no, you know, we have staff out in the field who are often in a position where somebody says, you know, I'd really like to do something for the organization. Why shouldn't they know how to ask? So it's, it's, it's a great tool. And it's also important for board members to be rewarded in ways that are just like, you really helped us. What you did has really advanced our vision. Thank you for introducing us to Mrs. Jones. She now is getting her whole family involved. It doesn't always have to be for money. Our excessive focus on money is one of the biggest burdens we have because philanthropy is giving, asking, joining, and serving. It is all those things. It is all voluntary action for the public good, and it's all based in values, in shared values. I share the values of this organization. So where you start, I think you have to get past with board members the fact that fundraising is a transaction. First of all, fundraising isn't about money. It's about relationships. You build the relationships which board members are nobly suited for, and the money will come. You ignore the relationships through poor stewardship, poor follow-up, not acknowledging gifts, ignoring people at events, and the money will go away. Relationship, relationship, relationship. And the model that I use is I contrast transaction which is if you can imagine a bell curve, and at the top of the bell curve is the solicitation, leading up to it are identification, qualification, development of strategy, cultivation, then solicitation at the top. And then you can put a little tick mark as you start going down the backside, TGIO, thank goodness it's over, 
And that's what really we end up thinking, oh my God, we got the gift, let's move on. And what happens is that we acknowledge, we may recognize if the gift is significant, and where do we put those people? We put them in the donor database, and then guess what? They can often languish there until it's time for us to ask them for money again. Instead, the model that I operate with is a transformational model, which imagine an infinity loop, a continuing loop, you know, with the crossing over in the middle. And it's how you bring a donor in, you educate them, you cultivate them, you solicit them, and then you keep them engaged. How do you keep them engaged? With messaging, with uh, follow-up, with sending them little notes, surprise notes. Just wanted to share with you that the program that you have supported has just won an award in our local community. Thank you for helping make that happen. I know then that you have just shown me that you know me. You know who I am. I'm not just somebody at the end of an email blast. We convey the benefits, which are what's happening. We convey the impact, which is how does it align with my values? How is it making my community stronger? And then that loop goes back up, intersects more money, or they bring in other people, and the loop is continual. And moving board members to see that this is not a one and done, and I make that point in Transform Your Board, too often we think of fundraising as a one and done. When I use those two models, I will say to people, okay, Imagine that that bell curve is really a caterpillar. And I will say, then look at the infinity loop, put a vertical line between the two ovals, and imagine that's a butterfly. It is the same for us. What feels to the caterpillar like the end, in other words, we're relieved to have the whole thing done, to the butterfly is just the beginning. Because when a person makes an investment in our organizations, and when a person comes on our board and invests their time, talent, and treasure, we have transformed them into an investor. They are no longer just a donor. Awesome. Um, we're going to move into our rapid fire section. Yes, right. Um, I'll just ask you rapid fire questions. Um, yep. 30 seconds to respond. Uh, don't think about it too hard. Uh, are you ready to go? I am. I'm here. Awesome. What is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? I'm not very techy as it is, but I will tell you that I rely on websites and particularly Chronicle of Philanthropy, uh, Nonprofit Quarterly, the literature of my field, and most of all, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, SSIR. Are there any tech issues you're battling with? I am not, but my clients do. And it is some of the databases are not relational enough. And so as they are storing information, it's one thing to store like members, but it's quite another to deal with the aspects of major gifts. And so I have been with them as they have struggled to add other things to existing software to improve their ability to access the relationship basis. What's coming in the next year that you're most excited about? Well, I'm most excited about the fact that I think it's time that we woke up. And we have to realize that philanthropy has, in fact, its greatest hope for changing, continuing to change our communities and be a substantive contributor to the whole fabric of our lives. If we view ourselves less as a .org and more as a movement, We've got to switch out the .org for a hashtag. We need to get energized. We need to pull in our partners, the corporations, the foundations, the associations, the others who are working in our space. And instead of circling the wagons and saying, wait a minute, this is our responsibility, say, join us. Because we have the ethics, the trust, the expertise, the track record. We want to work with you. Together, we can change the world. I love that. Um, talk about a mistake you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. I think this whole podcast was exemplified that. 
because I believe when I first came into fundraising, I was like everybody else. I thought, oh my gosh, no. But I had one incident that really shaped, I realized, everything that I did, it was some years before I did it, and it was the first meeting I went to when I volunteered to fundraise for an organization. They handed me the cards, and they said, call these people. I looked, I didn't know anybody. They gave me no instruction. You know, we had a glass of wine and some cheese, and we chatted with each other. I walked out with those cards. I came home, put them in my desk. Six weeks later, I get a call from the organization. How are you doing? I said, well, I'm having trouble getting in touch with these people. Yeah, because the cards were still in the desk. I finally took the cards out. I called the people. They were bad calls. And I did, of course, I raised money, but not very much. And boy, did I learn from that the importance of finding out what inspires the volunteer. I wasn't ready to be an asker. And I think that this was the seed of AAA for me. Do you think NGOs can successfully go out of business? I would hope they can. Um, I think that in, a, in the best of all possible worlds, in Voltaire's world, um, we would have only our hospitals, our schools, you know, the basic essential services. We would not have to have domestic violence uh, services because we would have solved these problems. Here's our biggest issue is that we, and the reason that younger donors are often impatient with us, we've had a long time to solve these problems. We are great at crises. Oh my goodness, give us a crisis, give us a tsunami, an earthquake, a bushfire, and we are on it. We are texting money, but you know what? We move on. And a problem is that the crises get dealt with. Those that don't turn into chronic issues and we are not dealing effectively in some people's eyes with the chronic issues. The problem is we need more resources, obviously, but we also need more partners. We have to really, really partner. So can NGOs successfully go out of business? I love when I hear that two NGOs have merged. In New Orleans, after Katrina, again, a disaster driving a decision, there were seven AIDS organizations in New Orleans of varying missions. And after Katrina, because the population was so decimated, but AIDS was still just such a crucial issue in their society, they came together under the auspices of the largest one, which is called No AIDS, as in New Orleans AIDS. And they made more impact on AIDS in New Orleans than those other organizations altogether. So the whole was better than the sum of its parts. And it's just, it is really so important to say, do we really need to be a separate organization? Or is there someone we could collaborate with? So the NGO going out of business has two prongs to it. One is let's solve the problem and go home. And the second one is, would we solve the problem more quickly if we partnered or collaborated or joined another organization? If you had a hot tub time machine back to the beginning of your work, what advice would you give? I would give this advice, keep your passion fresh. Because when I have flown, it's when my passion is so high. And when I have wavered, when I have felt, oh, it's when I've allowed my passion to wane. And that's why this book is so important to me. What is something you think you or your organization should stop doing? I think I should stop spending so much time on Facebook. Don't <laughs> <Well>, we all? <laughs> and, and email. <laughs> and uh, I think it's, it's the discipline of uh, making the best use of my time, right? Mm -hmm. If you had a Harry Potter wand for the industry, what would it do? It would see that it would be the most effective as a movement, engaging partners who may seem to have disparate agendas, but who have the muscle and the resources and the vision that we have. And if we join together, I think that we could solve these chronic problems that are plaguing our communities. What is your favorite question to ask an organization or a board member? 
simply this, what motivated you to become involved and what keeps your passion up? How did you get started in the social impact space? I started as a volunteer. I was a journalist and then an educator and I was volunteering like crazy. I, I was a national chair of five different programs for Stanford University, five volunteer programs, and I got their highest award for volunteer service, the Gold Spike. And then the rug was pulled out from under me and my work because California schools had really suffered under Prop 13 in terms of diminished funding. And schools abide by the last in, first out. And I was the last in because I had had a previous career. And my friends at Stanford said, have you ever thought of becoming in, of coming into the fundraising profession? And I said, you mean get paid for what I've been giving away? Well, now there's a concept. And I did, and I've never looked back. This is, for me, my passion point. It is my, it is my life. It is my love. It is just, I love what I do. And I've never looked back. It was the smartest decision I ever made. Great. Last one. What advice would you give college grads looking to enter the social impact sector? Get some experience before you come into the sector, doing other things. The journalism for me and the education were extremely important. But more than that, understand that this is not easy work. Sometimes people think, oh, nonprofits, oh, wow, that's like easy. It's not. You've got lots of bosses, you've got limited resources, you've got big deadlines, consistent demands, but you'll also find it's the most gratifying work that you can do. But it takes, I think, a level of maturity that I believe some people need to have a few years after they're out of school travel. Uh, I have a grandson who's just done this remote year program, which is incredible. He graduated from college, got himself a great software architect job, and he did it going around the world for a year. And now he's back and he's a different person because, and he's ready now to think about what he really wants to do. So take time when you can and then give this everything you can. Awesome. Well, sadly, we reached the end. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been delightful. Yes. Again, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. And where can people reach you? Uh, www.kgrace.org or ksprinklegrace at gmail and although i shouldn't have to spell it sprinkle is e-l not l-e <laughs> awesome thank you so much all right thank you this has been using the whole whale for more resources on today's show please visit wholewhale.com slash podcast and consider following us on twitter at whole whale and thanks for joining us